We, um, as you, many of you know, um, here at Redeemer, as a church family, we preached through uh, Luke's gospel um, for a couple of years. We spent our time there in Luke's gospel, and um, we actually began, it's been a long time since we've been there, at least in these early portions. It was somewhere at the end of 2015. Uh, transitioning into the beginning of 2016, where we began our study um, of Luke's gospel. Um, And I'm sure you remember various texts and things that were inspiring, encouraging, nourishing to you through your time in Luke's gospel. And one that stands out for me that I appreciate, there's a number of them that are particular uh, to me when I have an opportunity to select a text, as this morning having an opportunity to select a text for Um, uh, Christmas season uh, that stand out to me from Luke's gospel, and this is one of them that I've really appreciated over time, studying this text uh, and spending time with it. So I hope it'll be an encouragement to you as I had an opportunity to think of Christmas and its season and what we could speak on and how we could address the incarnation. This text comes to my mind. One of the things I appreciate so much about narratival preaching, as you may know, it's just full of detail. Uh, It's interesting whether we were in Luke's gospel for a period of uh, a couple of years or more, or we left and we went to Genesis and we we worked on Genesis 1 through 11 and those narratival structures in there. Uh, You see whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, narratival instruction, storytelling from scripture is uh, incredibly powerful. And that uh, if you do analysis on the Old Testament narratival, narratival stories, they're just as rigorously detailed. Um, and, and oftentimes we read right through them and we miss those rich details that really tell us not, again, um, that the story is being told. Because remember, I think roughly, I, don't, I should have looked at it perhaps, but now that comes to mind, roughly somewhere two-thirds of the canon is narratival. It tells you something about the power of the way that truth is communicated through story. Um, and the details and the character development, the plot, every piece, as we've mentioned time and time again, throughout our time in narratival instruction, storied scripture, that it's not just that the story is being told to you that is important. Of course, it is important. And if you think about Luke's gospel, certainly it's important because, as he said, and we celebrated last Sunday evening with the children's uh, evening up here for the Christmas story, um, we, had, we had a little man over here writing down who was being Luke. And you remember he addressed it to, to dear Theophilus. I'm writing these things. I've carefully searched them out. And if you look at chapter 1 of Luke, that's exactly what it is. So it is important that Luke is concerned with the actual events and the facts on the ground. So it's never an either or, that either we pay attention to the facts or we tell a great story. It's both. The facts of every text matter. The people, the places. But it's also the way that God has designed the story to be told through the people he chose, the places that he chose, the way in which the entire setting is structured. That there's, yes, it happened, but there's also saving instruction in it for us in the fact that it did happen and the way that it happened. The way that things occur instruct you, instruct me about the way in which God works. And here is an excellent place to learn of that. Uh, There's many things I could say this morning about the birth narrative. Of course, there are many things. But one that I want to address this morning through a few observations of our time together is humility. 
It's just so counterintuitive to the season that we're in. So it's a great reminder. It's a great reminder just because as incarnate fleshly creatures, we're, we're born toward pride. We're constantly oriented in that, destruction, in that direction. No matter how hard we try to curb that appetite, we're always inclined toward self. It, just, it, it is the way of self-preservation. It's the way that we are. And, and that's the sin principle within. That is great to remember humility at a time, but it's always necessary to revisit the need for our orientation towards humility. This text is a great place to do so just for a few moments together this morning as we move toward a time of status and stuff, unwrapping, unraveling, and spending, and coming, and going. And it's just a great reminder, kind of a, 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 a priming our pump, as it were, for where we go from here, is to prime it with the thoughts of humility. If we look at the story this morning, if you're there in Luke 1, we're going to see, again, um, that there is a humble people who will be Joseph and Mary. There's humble place setting and there's humble circumstances around him. And it's important that God chooses these humble places, these humble people and these humble circumstances to bring forth his son, our Savior. And what we learn from it immediately, if we contrast what are the conditions wherein we find our Lord born with ourselves, we see, indeed, if we're honest in the evaluative process of the text, there's a call here in this passage for the mortification of our pride. That, 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 that's in the text. Um, we're reminded, and, and I'll show you just briefly, um, from every pass in the text, that pride of place, that is our orientation towards self, that pride of place is a serious sin. And further, not just the obvious, but also that loving Christ involves mortifying it. This is instructed to us in this birth narrative. I want to show you how from four observations regarding God's purposeful use of humility in the accomplishment of his purposes. Um, uh, The first one, consider the text with me of verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the first purposeful use of humility in the accomplishing of God's purposes in verse 26 is the humility of place. I want, you to show the de- I want to show you the detail from the text, how we see this, the humility of place. That is location Nazareth. Um, right off the bat, uh, you notice two things about Nazareth, the way that Luke records it. Let me read it for you again so that you can see the humility of the place involved. This is the setting. And what do we learn about the setting? This is the way that God works. It, it, it runs against the grain of how we think things work. Uh, Notice, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city. A a, a city of what? A city of Galilee. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it's named Nazareth. Now, uh, again, right off the bat, there's two things we learn about the humility of place that is being mentioned here and how we know that indeed it is a humble place because it's nondescript. That is, Luke mentions it as, as you note there in verse 26, a city of Galilee. Why? Why does he note for us? It's a city belonging to Galilee. Well, 
historically because non-Palestinian readers would probably never even heard of so insignificant a village as Nazareth. And you remember to the purpose of what he's saying, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, verse 3 of chapter 1, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Again, it's an orderly account that Luke is delivering. So he notes the humble origins of the birthplace of our Lord, counterintuitive to where we would think someone of such kingly majesty would be born. But rather he notes for the careful reader, it's a city of Galilee, in case you cannot find it. Think of its contrast to the gaudy landscape of our self-promotion in the age of narcissism. The king of kings being born. And yet we have to note, underscript, it's a city belonging to Galilee. Oh, okay. That regionally at least gives me an idea. I couldn't help but to think of it as I was thinking of President Trump's, uh, this isn't political, it's just the age in which we live. I I don't mean it by any political analysis. I'm not weighing in on whatsoever, even gesturing toward that. I'm just simply saying, I I thought it was was a perfect timing, Uh, the the idea of uh, uh, purchasing Greenland, and and, and however you feel about it, again, I, I couldn't care any less. The point being, what was funny, was the contrast between a city known where the king of kings is being born and a tweet with a golden tower uh, pictured on Greenland that says Trump at the top. I just, again, um, that's not political. It's just, it, it, it's observational of the age of narcissism that not just, I'd say, he would live in. We, I, live in. That, 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 that would be, yeah, that's how we would view something of prominence, something of importance. It, it's not important unless it's got our name on it and, and, it, and we're recognized in it. But then here's the king of kings being born in a very carefully crafted narration so that you will be certain of the things that you have heard and you find out that the king of kings is born in Nazareth. Where is that? It's the city of Galilee. Again, it's not just that it's told, it's told for your instruction. The humility of place is so contrast to the self-promotion in our age of narcissism. Its reputation, I'll note for you just briefly, just to follow up, notice something about the humility of its reputation. In John 1, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you, but but it's the gathering of the disciples very early on in the life of our Lord. And, And just to pair with the idea of Nazareth, what are we to Think about the origins of the king of kings being born in Nazareth. Well, even the disciples don't know what to make of it. It cannot be. This isn't how a king is to be born. Listen, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is verse 43 of chapter 1. I'll just simply read it for you. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
You know the response. 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, if we piece together the thought behind our Lord's choice of being born in Nazareth, what are we to learn? But that even those who know where Nazareth is and the people who typically live there, it didn't even have the best reputation of those who knew of it. One author summarizes the thought of humility of place this way. He says, if our sensibilities, which they should be, if our sensibilities are shaped by this narrative at all, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously. We will be more self-critical and more receptive to unexpected manifestations of God's love and power. A classic, not judging the book by its cover. Humility of place in the origins of our Lord's birth. The second observation from the text I just want to make is the humility of the people involved. The humility of the people involved. Notice verse 27. Um, so he was, it was to a city of Galilee named Nazareth in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Interestingly, if you just slow down and read that text and meditate upon it just for a moment, and then you kind of cross-reference Joseph through the Gospels, you'll notice very quickly that there is nothing noteworthy about Joseph as an individual in any one of the four Gospels. For instance, we, we are not even sure of when or how he died. Doesn't it seem that we would, uh, in such a prominent person, such a prominent birth narrative, such a story, we would know so much about him, indeed, that is absolutely necessary, but we don't. We know very little about him. Somewhere after 12 years old, um, he, he's, he's, uh, he, he passes away after our Lord is roughly about 12 years old. We know that because if we go to um, Luke a little bit later, you remember the temple where Jesus was left behind, and it, the text marks that he was 12 years old at the time. The family had tri- driven by caravan, had left at about a 20 to 25-mile distance away from him by the time they found out, hey, Jesus is left behind. The text tells us he's 12 there. That's the last time when Joseph returns the next day to be with him and say, what is going on? You had us worried sick. We know our Lord is 12, and that's the last time we hear from Joseph. We know he's passed by the crucifixion events because as our Lord speaks to, uh, I believe it's John of the Gospels, he tells him to take care of your mother, Mary. Joseph is nowhere there. Um, Think of the humble origins of the people involved in the most magnificent plan that the universe has ever been witness to. And we just know so little about him. I think of that at times as well about humility when you think of the, the, the epistle written to the Hebrews. 
in the New Testament. The fact that we don't know authorial um, uh, authorship. Such a magisterial book. So phenomenal about Christ's exaltation and mediatorial work in the New Covenant. And we don't know the author. Just the way that, 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 that we are a means to the Lord's work. That it, 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 because he uses us isn't an issue of pride of place that we should well up with and lord over others. But he seeks to use the humble. And he's communicated to that through this text and the fact that Joseph is even the father. Now, again, it is, of course, important, as Luke does note, that he does rightfully belong to the house of David. You notice that in the text. That isn't an insignificant piece. I don't mean to downplay that portion. I'm just simply speaking to Joseph as a man. We know very little of him, but we know something significant about him of prophecy. He is of the house of David. This, of course, is significant for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But as Joseph himself, we simply know that he is a young man at this point in the text. Later in Matthew's gospel, we find out that he is a carpenter by trade. You remember they say, is this the carpenter's son, the son of of Joseph? So we know that way, as they speak of our Lord, we find out that Joseph is actually a carpenter. But as we'll see in just a moment in the text, he doesn't seem to make much money at it. The humble origins, the people involved in the birth of our Lord. Joseph and Mary, for sure, as they would come together and they're preparing to be together, neither one belonged to the upper crust of society. This isn't just ancillary. It's center gravity of the text. That this is God's orchestration. And it's got saving intent to speak of the need of humility and the life of his people. Just to add one other piece historically here. Historically speaking, if we were to enter into the story of the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, what can we deduce about Joseph at this time since they're betrothed, moving toward marriage? It would mean that Joseph historically in the first century is somewhere between 16 and 24 years old. Not sure, again, because we just don't know, but he's somewhere, he's a young man. He's somewhere between 16 and 24 would be the age of intent for a young man at that time to marry. He's a young guy. He's a carpenter, by all intents and purposes a hard worker, and one that doesn't seem to be making much money in the industry. He's a humble man. Also, if we add historical thought to Mary, the young virgin in the text, the average intent of a young gal to be married to a man, so some sort of entering into agreement age, um, was, nearly, was around 12 years old. So again, if we, if we just kind of average between him and her and we put it together, Mary is at best a young teenager. Joseph is a wee bit older, but they're both very, very young people. But what do we know of Mary? What is the virtue that marks her character? Humility. It's not a guess. Look at the text in verse 38 of chapter uh, 1 there in Luke. And Mary said, these are her words as she speaks. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Notice how she recounts it in the Magnificat in verse 46, the hymn issued in praise. Beginning in verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What is the grounds for such magnification? What is the grounds for such rejoicing? He has looked on the humble estate of who? His servant. She speaks of her own lowly estate, and she is not in any way bitter. But she sees herself of use to her Lord and Savior. Though she be humble, she gives praise that he looked upon her humble estate and sought fit to use a vessel as her. Again, what do we learn from the thought of Joseph and the thought of Mary and the humility of the people involved in the great work of our redemption? We see at least this that normal assumptions about people, normal assumptions about places, and normal assumptions of circumstances of one's life oftentimes blind us to the truth of the matter. This is being instructed to us. We're not, we're not constructing it. It's being taught and told to us as we read the text of the narrative of our Lord's birth. There's humility of place by design. There's humility of people by design. And there's a virtue of humility by design being exalted. This is something, again, that's helpful just at least by way of reminder. Because we're so naturally bent towards a a day of objectives that we have to accomplish. And we enter into that mindset that we just begin hammering these things out and doing them. And, and it's hard if you're not at every pass doing checks and balances on your own thought life to find yourself somehow being thankful with gratitude and humility. It's more just a thought of natural orientation is, I'm this because I've done that. That's my day. It's just how it is by sin principle. What a great time. What a great text to slice down those assumptions of self-importance and narcissism. A God seeks to use the humble. I mean, Luke 14, this is later, of course, and we're not going there. We're already starting to wind down our time, but Luke 14, our Lord puts the matter forcefully. He says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the opposite this version of our natural tendencies that are sinful. So from humility of place, humility of people, there's the humility of the circumstance all around. Uh, Look over in chapter 2, if you would, with me. Over to chapter 2. I want to show you this humility of circumstance more clearly. If you look at chapter 2, I want to begin in verse 22. And I'll just read a couple of verses here. But I want you to see this, the, the, the humility of circumstance surrounding the early life of our Lord with this young man, Joseph, this young woman, Mary, and, and, and now they have this uh, wonderful young baby. But, but things have not automatically changed for them, that they gave birth to the king of kings, and all of a sudden they're enriched. They have the possession of the Redeemer, the stewardship over which they see as two young people, and they're paupers. 
It's funny when you'd contrast that with health and wealth premise. That that just this text has to hit like being thunderstruck. If you just point to this text and say this cannot stand. Here, here, what more could these folks have done for him in order they might receive tenfold in their best life now? Come on, come on. Look at reality for just a moment. Um, Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... And that's significant for another day in time. But, but, but I'll just note for you, as we rehearsed this morning through the Westminster Confession of Faith, how important it is that our Lord undertook our flesh, and at the very beginning, he began to fulfill the law on our behalf. He didn't miss a single step that he might impute that righteousness to our account. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Again, why is it significant? Luke is filling it in. As it is written in the, law of Mo, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So you're back with Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus at Jerusalem in concert to fulfillment of the law and look at their obedience. Verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, I just read one other text for you, just briefly. You don't need to turn there. I'll take care of it. But I'll note for you it's in Leviticus 12. Because the citation here speaks of them bringing Jesus to Jerusalem in fulfillment of the law in accordance to all righteousness, according to the law of the Lord. And then it tells you what they brought. It leaves out what they didn't bring. Let me read for you just briefly. Um, If you're noting it, it's Leviticus 12, and I'll begin in verse 6, and I'm just going to read down through verse 8. Notice carefully, it tells us so much about the story. And when the days of her purifying, this is in Leviticus, and the days of her purifying are completed, whether a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb. You're like, okay, I'm looking Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Okay, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I, I thought it was a lamb. Okay, great. So, so, so bring a lamb, uh, a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from her flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Did you see? I got loud right at the key point. If she can't afford it, there's a permissible way to meet the needs of the humble. So what do we know about Mary? What do we know about Joseph? 
Again, humility of circumstance. For purification, they were to bring the priest a lamb. For a burnt offering, a pigeon. For sin offering. In this case, as I just noted for you, as we read in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph didn't bring a lamb because they couldn't afford it. Rather, they offered before the priest with the Lord of lords in their hands, the king of kings in their hands. They offered a meager ration, what was permissible within the law for those of meager means. It speaks to the humility of circumstance and the poverty of Joseph and Mary. Again, what do we learn of our Lord's purposeful use of humility in the origin story? What do we as 21st century readers make of such humility? How are we moved by a story of such humility? We're told again and again and again, at every pass, if we took up Luke's gospel and we just began reading it and we go through all the work and the ministry of our Lord, we find out again and again and again that God's manner of working is in the hidden. We find this out at every pass. Well, this person's surely going to be the hero of the text. And again and again, it is the pattern of reversal. He changes fleshly expectations that it might move us to renounce our pride and exercise our faith. It's not that I can, it's that he can. It's not that I can and he can, it's that he must. That's the story of the text, that's the decreasing element that the Lord may increase. The final thing I have for us this morning of humility in the text is the humility of a servant. I just want you to see the heart of a servant. We speak of being servants of the Lord or uh, having an attitude and a heart of, of service or a person of a servant spirit, and you try to teach that to your children as they try to get along. You try to teach that and try to model it, so on and so forth. We speak of it often. All of us speak of the different levels and acts of service and being a servant of the Lord. But here stands out a very clear issue for us as his people to be indeed faithful servants. It's on display in verse 37 and 38. Notice the text. I'll just jump up in 34. I have an extra minute. I'm concluding with you now. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Now, again, um, you can contrast that. This is just a footnote of the text, but Mary here begins to stand in contrast to Zechariah. Earlier events in the text, Zechariah received, remember, um, he he was muted uh, because his response to the truth of the word of the Lord was, uh, how can this be? Or no, no, his point is, how shall I know this? Mary's contrasting response to, indeed, amazing words is, um, you see her response, how will this be? It's not, how do I know you could really do this? But rather, what is the mode by which we will enter into this? She receives it immediately, is indeed 
this is the work of the Lord. She exercises faith in what would have been incredibly difficult circumstances of a young teenage girl hearing from an angel, you're about to give birth to the seed of David. But she exercises faith. But how will this be? Not, how could you do such a thing? Or, or how do I know that's true? It's how will this be? I'm just wanting to point out the obvious. I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, based on this, the way in which you receive this child, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And this is the final mark of the text, the humility of a servant. Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. What is the response of being a servant of the Lord, where he calls you in life, the station you find yourself in, the life that you find yourself leading? What is the response, indeed, a humble response that is being taught and instructed to each of us through this text? The following words. Let it be to me according to your word. You see, Mary who was at best, as we've mentioned, a very young teenage girl, believed the integrity of the word of God. We struggle with that in pride, that our station should be different in life, that we ought to have more in life, that that we deserve different things in life. Um, And here in the text, we find a young gal who is up against an incredible Incredible situation, and to realize the birth of our Lord when she is a virgin, fully aware of how children are given. And her response to her station in life with the immense promise out in front of her is indeed, let this be so. Because she recognizes place of humility. I am your servant not the other way around. A great time to remember this text and remember what, you know, the reason for the season. Humility of place, that God works in the hidden, magnifies the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments around your word to have that time to... Just recalibrate. Help us. It's not a one-time moment where now we've been instructed and we've all rehearsed the great joy of humility that it brings peace and fulfillment and a self-actualization in true terms where we're really the people that we want to be and experience the joy of your salvation and humbleness. But it's an ongoing fight that we must be reminded of again and again and again. So the Lord go with us. Not that this just be a holy moment but that you, our friend and savior, that we walk through faith with you each day, that you'd help us see the pride. Oftentimes we're blinded. Let us see 
Let us submit. Let us be nourished and forgiven and renewed and go about our lives being your servants. Help us with this immense task. Give us the joy of our salvation, of following you. Nourish and rinse us clean. In your name we pray. Amen.